Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode takes us into the world of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York baseball team whose rise to glory won them fans around the world and whose departure to more profitable pastures left a legacy of bitterness. We're joined by special guest Andy McHugh, the author of Mover and Shaker, Walter O'Malley, The Dodgers, and Baseball's Westward Expansion. We start in September 1957 at Ebbets Field, where there's sadness and uncertainty in the air. For decades, the Brooklyn Dodgers have evoked the idea of community. They are the sports team that pulled itself together despite the odds, cheered on by thousands of local fans of all ages. They've played at this ground since 1913. Their groundbreaking inclusion of African-American athletes in the 1940s and their never-give-up attitude are just as important as their impressive World Series victory two years before. But today is the last time the team will play in their hometown. Their owner, businessman Walter O'Malley, is about to move them to Los Angeles. The crowd cheers as the boys of summer play at Ebbets Field for the last time. Today, Brooklyn is New York's most populous borough. But back when the baseball team is born in the late 19th century, the bustling settlement is considered a city in its own right. In fact, it's an influential twin city to New York. In the coming decades, the thriving settlement will be overshadowed by its larger neighbour, but Brooklyn people retain their own distinct sense of identity, and sport, of course, is part of this. Brooklyn's baseball team is originally known as the Greys, due to their grey uniforms. Around the turn of the century, the press gives them a new nickname, the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers, due to the difficulty their fans have getting around the trolley or tram lines in their hurry to reach the pitch. The Dodgers were a moderately successful team in their first 30 years, but in the late 1920s they lost their way. The team became popularly known as the Daffiness Boys due to their absent-minded, erratic style of play. In one memorable play, three players, Babe Herman, Dazzy Vance and Chick Fuster, all ended up on third base at the same time. In the late 1930s, the team were often referred to as Dem Bums after sports cartoonist Willard Mullins' illustrations. Although sometimes their performance left a lot to be desired, they never lost the affection and goodwill of their local fans. Andy McHugh talks about the early years. So they were a, a, a fairly successful team um, until uh, the late 20s. Uh, Charles Ebbets, who had been the owner of the team and built the iconic Ebbets Field, uh, died in 1925. And... Um, the team was very badly managed uh, all the rest of the 20s and all through the 30s. It was um, in debt to everybody. It owed the league money. It owned various banks money. Um, it was in very poor shape. And then it was revived, uh, first of all, by a 
man named Larry McPhail, who uh, improved the product on the field, won the National League pennant in 1941. Then McPhail went off to the Army and uh, the National League, which was still worried about the franchise, uh, had them bring in Branch Rickey uh, to be the general manager. And uh, it was at that time that Walter O'Malley uh, joined the team as well. A talented baseball and football player himself, Branch Rickey has a strong moral compass and a penchant for innovation. The former Ohio farm boy pioneers the use of statistical analysis in baseball. He also encourages the Dodgers to use newfangled tools that today are commonplace in baseball, batting cages, pitching machines, and batting helmets. Overseas, World War II is raging, and young American men are joining up. But unlike the managers of other teams, Branch Rickey is continuing to sign new talent, reasoning that most of his players will return. By this stage, Rickey has been involved in baseball in varying capacities for more than 40 years, and he doesn't like the treatment doled out to African-American players. So in the early 1940s, he seizes the opportunity to fulfill another vision. He wants to break baseball's color barrier, the rule that confines black players to the Negro Leagues. He knows adding a black player to the Dodgers will be highly controversial, and that it's vital to get the right man, not only a gifted player, but one with the right character. By 1945, he thinks he's found him, Jackie Robinson of the Kansas City Monarchs. When Ricky summons Robinson to meet him at the Dodgers headquarters later that year, Robinson initially thinks he's being asked to play for a new Negro League team sponsored by the club. Ricky explains that he's looking for a new Dodgers player, someone who's able to turn the other cheek and not let himself be provoked by the racist abuse he will inevitably face. Ricky harangues Robinson with examples of the kind of treatment he can expect, from fellow players, from fans, from clerks and hotels. Finally, Robinson, who in the Negro Leagues is known for his fiery temper, is prompted to ask Ricky if he really wants a black player who's afraid to fight back. Ricky roars back, I want a player with guts enough not to fight back. Ricky, who was raised in the Methodist Church, even takes out a copy of The Life of Christ and reads from it to inspire Robinson. Robinson takes his time considering the proposal, before finally telling Ricky that he will play baseball in Brooklyn and there will be no incident. He begins to play for the Montreal Royals, one of the Dodgers' minor league teams, in 1946. And in 1947, he's promoted to the Dodgers. He famously makes his debut on April the 15th, wearing a number 42 jersey. Jackie Robinson's inclusion in the team is considered a huge victory for the civil rights movement in America. At this time, there's still a deep racial divide. The Montgomery bus boycott, after Rosa Parks famously refuses to give up her seat, is several years in the future. Jackie Robinson is no stranger to the limitations African Americans experience. 
During the war, he was even court-martialed after he refused to sit at the back of a military bus. His brother Mac had a good education and won a silver medal at the 1936 Olympics. But when he returned, he could only find janitorial work. Compared to many areas of America, Brooklyn at this time is a progressive multicultural place with many recent immigrants, but the early years are still tough. In his first season, Robinson will describe receiving torrents of abuse and he struggles not to respond to the vitriol directed at him. Sadly, he also experiences some prejudice within the team itself, prompting the team's fiery manager, Leo Durocher, to tell the other Dodgers that he doesn't care if Robinson is yellow or black or has stripes like a zebra. I'm the manager of this team, and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich, and if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded. Our guest, Andy McHugh, talks about Jackie's inclusion in the Dodgers and how it was received. When they went to spring training in 1947, Robinson was still technically in the minor leagues, but they were playing a lot of exhibition games, not against other major league teams that spring, but against the Montreal Royals, the team Jackie was on. And it was an effort by Ricky and Dodger manager Leo DeRocher just to show the team just how good this guy was. And DeRocher wound up giving a very impassioned speech in the locker room about how, you know, let's let's forget all this racial stuff. This guy is going to make you money because he's going to win. And so the, the the players were still divided, but DeRocher and Ricky knew this was going to happen. They were going to thrust it down their throats if they had to. And they didn't really have to. They were, I mean, it was these guys were a cross section of America. Some of the Southerners were were very upset that Robinson was coming on. Some of the others didn't particularly care one or the other. Some of them um, were more or less, a, you know, kind of, what shall I say, opposed without being very vocal about it. And then they saw how the rest of baseball, a number of teams, how they treated Robinson, screaming at him, cursing him, yelling at him. And they just kind of turned out of a, of a basic decency that said, you know, this guy doesn't deserve this. And so they, they became his teammates. Some of them, Pee Wee Reese, uh, Carl Erskine, people like that, became his friends. And uh, Drosher was right. He made them a lot of money. It came to be accepted around the league. A lot of it depended on, you know, individual players. There were, there were racists probably on every team. Most of them kept their mouths shut. Some of them, including the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, were very vitriolic about the whole thing. And I mean, Robinson was under immense, immense pressure, really, from from people just broadcasting their hate. And he had to, you know, let that go, let that flow over him while he performed on the field. And, uh, you know, it's a real credit to him as a as a human being that he uh, he withstood that he triumphed over it and, you know, proved that he was a great player. And, you know, by extension opened the door to other black players. So in, in Brooklyn, he was, he, he was more or less revered, especially by the younger people, you know, who were, who were less conscious of the fact that he was black and more conscious 
of the quality of play that he was giving the team. And, you know, Brooklyn at that time was, was a fairly liberal borough, you know, it was a, a lower middle class, very democratic, democratic party kind of a place. And so there was a lot of sympathy, you know, a lot of other recent immigrants who had some idea of, of what the, the prejudice of the majority was like. Um, a lot of Jews who were highly, highly uh, sensitive to, to what was going on in terms of prejudice and exclusion. So he was, you know, in general, there's, I mean, every place you go, there's a range of people on that issue from, from one end to the other. But on the whole, the borough was very accepting and very, very proud, really. Despite the controversy around Robinson, other National League teams follow the Dodgers' lead fairly quickly, including African-American players on their teams in the mid to late 1950s. However, the black players chosen are all superstars, players who are phenomenally talented. When it came to deciding between two marginal players, teams were still likely to pick a white player over a black one, a dynamic that gradually shifts in the 1960s and 70s. The Dodgers win national pennants several times in the 1940s, beating their rivals, the New York Giants. But each time, they lose the World Series to the New York Yankees, leading to the famous catchphrase from their fans, wait till next year. Throughout the early 1950s, their determination builds. Andy McHugh talks about some of the players who made up that historic team. These were, these were Ricky's boys. I mean, Ricky had been gone from the team for four years at that point, but this, this was Ricky's team. He put them together. The pitching was a little bit uh, weaker. The best one probably was Don Newcomb, another of the original uh, black trio on the Dodgers. Big, powerful guy. The next year in 56, he would win uh, both the Cy Young Award and the MVP. He was also a terrific hitter. Carl Erskine was another big part of that team as a starting pitcher. Clem Levine coming out of the bullpen. And then a lot of mix and match kind of guys who, who uh, manager Walt Delston, you know, used on the mound as needed. But it was, it was acknowledged that that was kind of the, the soft spot of the team. And, and various rookies would be tried out and journeymen used here and journeymen there. So, But it was basically a, a terrific offensive team in playing in a rather small ballpark, which played to their strength of hitting home runs. The Dodgers' long-awaited victory was exciting news for fans, many of whom skipped school or work to attend the game. There were some uh, great headlines for, for years, for all those years in the late 40s and early 50s when the Dodgers won the pennant and then lost the series, usually to the Yankees. Their cry would always be, wait till next year. And so one of the famous headlines the morning after the series was, this is next year. And uh, I mean, it was widely, widely appreciated. You know, people were joyous. There was the usual kind of partying in the streets and yelling and screaming. Those games were afternoon games at that time. So by the time, you know, most people got off work, those who hadn't skipped work, were, were able to, to get out and really have an evening of celebrating. The Dodgers had a big celebratory uh, dinner at one of the Brooklyn hotels. Um, lots of kids my age still talk about uh, how their, their teacher 
uh, let them listen to the radio instead of having school that day. So it, it, it was a big deal for the borough. And again, this was, this was a big piece of their identity on, on the national scale. And here were the Dodgers, this kind of charismatic team that, you know, had also grown up with the, uh, what shall I say, that kind of sympathetic touch that people get when you know somebody's good, but they can't quite get over the top. And now they get over the top. So all that sympathy came into play as well. Despite the buzz around the Dodgers in Brooklyn, after the World Series win, their stay in the city is short-lived. Every good story needs a villain, and in this case, that role is filled by the larger-than-life cigar-smoking businessman, Walter O'Malley. Unlike Branch Rickey, who's been involved in baseball all his life, O'Malley had a prior career in law. In the Depression era, he specialised in representing companies who had gone bankrupt. He becomes the team's attorney in 1942, acquiring minority ownership a couple of years later, and in 1951, he gains majority ownership of the Dodgers. He will go down in the history books as the man who packed the team off to L.A., putting money above loyalty to Brooklyn. Baseball historian Tom Knight sums up the attitude of many sports fans when he says, it took a certain type of individual to pull a stunt like that, and Walter was it. However, behind the scenes, there are some valid reasons behind O'Malley's decision to leave Brooklyn. The team is having great difficulties with their playing ground, Ebbets Field, which has been in a state of disrepair for more than a decade. Ebbets Field needs a million dollars pumped into it every year just to keep it functional. Technology also means baseball is becoming less profitable. As TV becomes more and more popular, crowd numbers at Ebbets Field are declining. Between 1943 and 1947, audience numbers more than doubled, but by 1950 they're starting to decline. And to O'Malley's great frustration, it seems the city of New York isn't taking his quest for a new playing field seriously. Our guest talks about Walter O'Malley's desire to find a new location for the team and the difficulties he had dealing with Robert Moses, the powerful civil servant known as New York's master builder. What he wanted the city of New York to do was help him put together a plot of land on which he would build a stadium and he would pay for it. And he thought that there were basically federal programs that could provide some of the money that the, the city would have to spend money to put together that, that plot of land that he wanted. But he thought that if he would need parking for his ballpark, the city just needed parking generally, and there was federal money available for that, he thought they could put those together. Well, Robert Moses was not interested in that. O'Malley spent three or four years trying to find a way around Moses. And other people found their way around Moses, but O'Malley couldn't do that, didn't, didn't have the, the political connections or the guile or whatever was needed to get that done. So it reached the point where he began to look for leverage on the city of New York. I mean, it's, it's clear to me in, in retrospect that basically one of the big reasons he was getting nowhere was that New York simply believed 
nobody would leave. This is the middle 1950s. This is what we used to call the capital of the free world. New York City, the, the biggest, brashest, uh, most powerful city in the world. Who would leave that? Who would want to get out of that? Um, and so they were not particularly responsive at all. And, you know, there was a lot of, oh, yes, uh, we're happy to do anything you need, Walter, you know, just come and talk to us. But n- nothing got done. So he started doing this. He started playing some of the Dodgers home games over in Jersey City, hoping that that would send a message. He sold the real estate under Ebbets Field to a housing developer, hoping that that would send a message. And finally, in early 1957, he bought the minor league franchise in Los Angeles, and that gave him territorial rights to the city of Los Angeles as far as baseball was concerned. By 1957, Walter O'Malley has burned his bridges in New York. He makes the decision to leave, heading to Los Angeles, which at this time is America's third largest city. It's also the heart of Hollywood, and increasingly it's also the center of the music industry. L.A. welcomes the Dodgers, but the decision devastates Brooklyn fans and creates a lasting sense of bitterness. New York writers, village voice kind of people. And one of them says to the other, let's, they're at a bar one night, let's play this little parlor game. We'll write down the names of the third, the three worst people in history and put them in order. And they both make their list and they compare them as the same lists. Hitler, Stalin, Walter O'Malley. And, you know, there is that, that kind of feeling that maybe a little perspective has been lost here, but it's still, it's, it's an emotional thing. I mean, you're, your tie to a baseball team is not logical. It's not important, really, but it's strong. And so there, there were a lot of people that, that were very embittered by it. By, and basically, you know, nobody wants to admit that baseball is a business. But it is, you know, we want to hang on to our romantic notions about this game we've, we began to play as children and that we still enjoy as adults. And yet, hey... It's a business. The immediate aftermath of the move is a mixed bag. The first year the Dodgers spend in L.A. isn't that successful sports-wise. It's a year of transition in more ways than one, as some of the team's older and more experienced talent begins to fade away. Jackie Robinson has already retired, and Pee Wee Reese only plays for a year in L.A. before he too heads into retirement. Don Newcomb is still playing, but he's struggling with a serious alcohol problem, which he will manage to beat in the 1960s. He's remembered today as a role model for people suffering from addictions. Distractions in the form of Hollywood nightlife are also affecting the team's performance. But financially, the move is well worth it, and their performance picks up in 1959 when they again win the World Series. The enduring story of the original team and the heartfelt reaction of Brooklyn fans when they left is in some ways a perfect example of how much sports teams mean to us and how we tend to romanticise them. The importance of the Brooklyn Dodgers to the civil rights movement can't be underestimated. Martin Luther King Jr. once even told Don Newcomb, you'll never know what you and Jackie and Roy Campanella did to make it possible to do my job. Today, 
Ebbets Field in Brooklyn is the site of an apartment block. Only the name of the famous sports ground remains. But there are references to Jackie Robinson scattered all over New York City and further afield, recognising the contribution the baseball player made to American society. He even has an asteroid named after him. Andy McHugh discusses the team's legacy. They were a wonderful, charismatic team, especially the, the 55 champions. And then uh, you have a book like Roger Kahn's The Boys of Summer come out, which is really a very romantic, beautifully written treatment of that team. And so they kind of live on in that way. And, and they were, uh, especially because of Robinson. I mean, if you, I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan, but if you look at, we have 150 years or so now of professional baseball in the United States. And the only really significant person in that whole range is Jackie Robinson. And he was a Dodger. So yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it was an important team and uh, you know, people still react to that. I mean, Billy Joel's pretty much my age and he remembers them. So, you know, he did enough to put them in the song. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music. To our special guest, Andy McHugh, author of Mover and Shaker, Walter O'Malley, The Dodgers and Baseball's Westwood Expansion, and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by learning about the life of Davy Crockett, American folk hero, soldier and politician. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.